0: Please open your Bibles to James chapter 2 and our focus this morning will begin at verse 14 but the section goes right down to verse 26 so we will read the entire section. I call it a pericope portion, a section. Our sermon however will focus on 14 through to 17 so read with me James chapter 2 verse 14. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith, but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body. What good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe in God? Uh, Sorry, you believe that God is one? You believe well? Well, the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham, our father, justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that, says, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. And he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And in the same way was not also Rahab, the prostitute, justified by works. When she received the messengers and sent them out by another way. For as the body, uh, for as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. It's almost a cyclical section. It's the same thing repeated in a variety of diff- different ways. So we're going to be dealing with faith and works for at least three weeks. This part of the book of James caused Martin Luther to call this little epistle, the stroy epistle. Luther questioned the usefulness of James because it says so little of justification by faith alone. But it makes a claim that one is justified by works and not by faith alone, which is a problem if you think about it. So Luther... After reading 2.17, chapter 2, verse 17, so also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. And verse um, 22, you see that faith, uh, not 22, 24, you see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone, caused him some sort of angst. Why? Because the Catholic Church that it comes from believe that you are justified by faith and works. So it is faith working with works causes justification. And they, the Catholic Church, believe that because of this verse. James chapter 2 verse 24. So Luther had a tremendous struggle with this portion of Scripture and relegated to to a passage possibly inspired by God, but it's more for practical living and not theological at all. And I think we have proven there is a number of aspects of theology that is resident in this book already. However, as we will see later on, I'm not dealing with this this morning, as we will see later on, that James does not use justification the same way as Paul uses justification. Yes, there may seem to be an antinomy. There may seem to be a contradiction or a seeming contradiction between Paul and James. But that is because we have taken Paul as the standard of theology and viewed James through Paul. Yet, who was written first? James. In the 40s, or probably prior to the 40s, James writes, which means he precedes Paul, By at least a decade. Which means his way of speaking and using certain terms is not exactly the same as Paul's Paul's theological treatise of both justification and works by faith. And I will get to that from next week onwards. We will not cover that this morning. But what I am going to do is to resist the temptation to defer to Paul in this book. I'm going to resist temptation also to jump to other passages to prove this book. I believe that what James is doing is proving his own point. I don't need to go elsewhere to prove what he is saying. There is enough in this portion of scripture to clarify what James means. The apparent antinomies, the apparent contradictions, another way of saying that, will fade into insignificance and the whole Theological debate and can't tell you how many papers and theses have been written on this subject will fade away when you understand James to explain James. But the minute you take Paul to explain James, you're going to hit some trouble. This portion of scripture, 14 through to 26, does not, um, is not so much about words, but rather the quality, the nature, the expression and validity of faith. It's about faith, not so much works. James wants to impress upon his hearers that faith granted by God, life that is born from God in chapter 1 verse 18, God brings us forth, will result in a change. This kind of faith is not a dormant faith or an inactive faith, but a living faith that will undoubtedly, almost assuredly, assuredly, demonstrate itself out in works. That is the relationship between works and faith. But his emphasis is faith, not works. When I began almost two years ago now, I can't remember, a year ago, um, I said that there's, the major theme is faith that works. That is the predominant theme throughout the book. This section elevates that, magnifies that. If faith is present, you can be sure that there will be signs of wisdom. What is the undercurrent that drives faith? It is wisdom. And we will see that in chapter 3. In chapter 1, we saw faith tested in 1 verse 3. In chapter 2, we saw faith and discrimination. And now we will see faith demonstrating itself (coughs) in works. So we have not left the arena of faith. But it is somewhat of a different focus, slightly different to what we have dealt with before. Here we will see James highlight the necessity of tangible works as it relates to saving faith. Therefore, if there is a claim to faith, if anybody says, I believe in God, I trust in Jesus, and there is not ongoing, observable, visible fruit in the form of good works, that faith claim is suspect. Or as um, Byron says, sus. That, that's, uh, I've never heard that before, but anyway. James says that if you make a claim to faith, but there's nothing that can validate that, you are no better than a corpse. It is dead. While there are practical implications throughout this portion of this chapter, James's main point is primarily focused on the theological aspect of faith and its implication for the life of the believer. Faith demonstrates itself not merely in a profession but also in practical ministry or practical means. That is the summation. Of the entire section. So if you forget everything else I say after that, that is the sermon and everything up to verse 26. The emphasis of the demonstration of works, I should say, the uh, corollary, or the corollary, as the South Africans say it, action of genuine faith is genuine, sincere, heartfelt works. Now, before I begin, let me give you a conceptual layer of the entire passage from 14 through to 26. This is the general outline, and then I'll break it down even further. Verse 14 to 17, faith that works, part one of the sermon. Verse 18 through to 19, faith is never alone, part two. And then verse 20 through to 26, faith illustrated through works, part three. Now, for this morning's sermon, that is not the outline. The outline is very simple. Number one, a penetrating question. You will see that in the text. A sobering illustration and a deadly conclusion. You will see the pun later on. That's the scope of the entire section from verse 14 through to 17. I seldomly deal with more than one verse at a time. So this is going to be unique. And I normally preach for an hour, but I will try to keep it less than an hour. And my time starts now. You will see the outline developing as we work through this section. So I'm going to work from verse 14 through to 17. It's one section, so I want to keep it together. A penetrating question. What good is it, my brothers? James leads with this question, but notice he also encapsulates the section at the end of verse 16. What good is that? Same question. You could see this as two bookends, like the front cover and the back cover of the book. And normally at the back of the book you have a summary or highlights of what is in the book. Verse 17 is those the highlight, is the summary of what he has just spoken about. So if you can conceptually understand bookends, what good is it? What good is that? And I'm going to summarize verse 17 as the enclosure to this book. So sandwich between these two major sections, verse 14 and verse 16, we have an illustration. This illustration makes the point. It's, it's not the main point, but it elucidates the point. And it is this. If the faith you have does not have an immediate or lasting change seen in actions or works that glorify God and affects His people, then that is not saving faith. The burden is not that we can point to a moment of where we've made a profession or a decision for Christ, or that we are in a church that believes the truth and preaches the gospel of Christ but the burden is can your faith be sin is your faith visible or is your faith only as good as your profession your claim this is a most uncomfortable question for the church today why because a lot a lot of believers are not active in church ministry. We excuse it as immature, or there's no ministry for them. Pause there. When was this written? Right in the beginning of the existence of the church or coming into existence. AD 33 through 234. The Lord um, thirty yeah, four. the Lord sent his spirit and established the church at Pentecost. Post that, we see the church developing. So around about 40, it is still very new. They do not have church ministry as established ministry as we have today. They are still meeting in the synagogue. Some of them are still going to the temple for worship. There is no real ministry as we know. The only time that they meet together is on a Sunday, or probably Sabbath for some of them, but on a Sunday and meeting with one another in their houses. That's the only time you could see visible ministry on display. When we think of ministry, we think of plugging into a ministry, being part of the Sunday school ministry, the music team ministry, the hospitality ministry. We think of categories of ministry. The only aspect of ministry that they had was practical displays of fellowship with one another. Yet, With all the provision of ministry today, with all the facility of believers being able to plug into various aspects of ministry, there's a lot more today than there was back then. You still have believers not wanting to commit to ministry. This is uncomfortable. I know for some of you it is really uncomfortable. Yet some are comfortable to remain absent from the community of the saints. They are absent from investing into the lives of God's people. They are absent in loving God's people. Why? Well, it could be that they are lazy. But let's take the common approach to church today. And let's move it back 2,000 years. Place it before James. What do you think he will say? Faith without works is what? Dead. It should concern you. It should concern you. This passage is about those who claim to have faith, but are not actively demonstrating that they have faith. Now, let's give attention to these questions. There are two questions in verse 14. You may have noticed that, but some translations only have one question. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith? Faith. The way that the Greek is structured here could actually uh, be translated. What good is it, my brothers, if one of you or if one person or if someone says, I have faith. Now, for those of you who may have a Greek Bible open, may be confused as to why I'm saying I. The way that it is written could be translated in the first person. Because it's a self-verifying claim. I have faith. But the translations here capture that uh, that's in essence by saying, he has faith. The next question is at the end of verse 14. Can that faith save him? What faith is he talking about? Now some translations do not have the phrase, can clause, that faith. But nearly, nearly says, like the King James would say, can faith save him? Well, can faith save Yes, but James's point is not that faith is in question. James's point is that this specific kind of faith is in question. It goes back to the claim in the beginning part of verse 14. He says, if somebody claims or says, the word there um, uh, says could also be translated as claim. If somebody claims he has faith, that faith, can that faith. Faith that does not have works, can that faith result in salvation? Think about it. What does it mean to claim that you have faith? What does it mean when you say, well, I believe, or I believe in God? You're claiming that you are what? Saved, right? That is the claim. When you claim that you have faith, in God or in the Lord, you are claiming that you are saved. That is what James is after. But his question is, can that faith actually, in a future aspect, save him? So he's not talking about being or coming to salvation, but being maintained as a believer for a future day. So this is eschatological. Will this faith in the future save you? Can you bank on the fact that you have made a claim but have never demonstrated yourself to be a believer, can you actually bank on that fact that you are a Christian and will it be verified in the future? The very way that this question is asked expects the answer no. In fact, there are two negations in this verse, and so the answer is no, this faith will not save the claim to faith does not necessarily mean the presence of faith so then, the claim of faith is not enough, it is not enough for you to say, I believe there must be tangible works that demonstrate that you have saving faith James is not saying that you need works to be saved. That is not what we believe. But James is saying that if you are genuinely saved, you will have what? Works. Works is the necessary outworking of salvation. Now, there are those commentaries who limit the work of salvation in just the giving to the poor because of the illustration. But I'm going to point out to you that that is not exactly the main aspect that James has in view here. Moreover, what he has in view is obedience. This means that there must be a correlative relationship between faith and works. There's an absolute necessity for for faith to be demonstrated in works. Don't get me wrong. I'm not saying that you need works to be saved. Absolutely not. But if you are saved, if faith in Christ is present, you will show that to be true in the works that you do. This is a serious point of concern for James. If you therefore make a profession, but the reality is that there is no accompanying works that affirm your faith, you are as good as dead. Look down at verse 19. You believe that God is one, you do well. So you believe in God, double thumbs up, good job buddy, but that's not good enough. Notice what he says, even the demons believe and shudder. Do you know what he's just proven? Even demons respond to God. So it is not enough for you to say, I believe. Let me put it this way. A claim to faith apart from works is faith in quality less than demonic faith. Make sense to you? If you claim that you believe in Christ as Savior, but you never ever demonstrate that to be a reality, then the demons have a better faith than you. Why? Because they believe and they shudder. They realize who God is. There is a visual response in them. They tremble before God and you make a claim to say that you believe in God and you don't even want to submit to him. Your faith is worse than demonic faith. Shocking reality is that demons actually have a better faith than some people, maybe even in this church who claim to have faith in God. I don't mean to be hard in sermons, but this is chain speaking. If if it's bothering you, well, good. I don't want to be the one that causes conviction. That conviction you are feeling is God's spirit that is probing at your heart. If you are thinking of your own life right now, well, good. See, a claim of faith or belief in God does not mean that you know God. James is writing in a context where belief in God was part of their culture. They grew up in a society where the law was given to them on a continual basis. Children grew up in a church, in a house where the law was given by the father and by the leader of the community. They knew about God. James says, it's not enough. In fact, he quotes the Shema. You believe that God is one? That's from Deuteronomy chapter 6. Well, good on you. But guess what? The demons believe the exact same truth. So it's not enough to just say, you know what? I was born a Jew and I believe in God. No, not enough. And there may be some of us that are born in Christian families who think that, you know what? my mom and dad is saved. I'm good. No. Not good enough. There has to be a demonstration of a relationship with God. That is what the law points to. You cannot fully obey me without knowing me. If you have if all you have is a claim to salvation but no actual works, that works, that is works that come from salvation, then your faith is less than demonic faith. What about when we say, Lord, if you give me a house, I will serve you with it. Ever said that? What about when we say, Lord, if you only give me that beautiful pink Cadillac? And I will drive every person that needs a lift to church. What do you call that? It's a profession. It's a claim. But if that claim never becomes a reality, it's dead. What about, Lord, if I win the jackpot this month, I will give half of it to the church. And what happens? Maybe you win. I'm not saying that you should be playing the jackpot. Please don't. The point is, workless faith has no value. And that is what James is after when he says, what good is it? What's the benefit? What's the value? What's the worth of the claim when there is nothing to prove that claim? Let me just insert this here. There's some confusion as to the use of the word works. So, some struggle with the word works, and so they translate it as actions or deeds. That's an okay translation. You could probably do that. But it's the same word as used by Paul in Galatians and Romans when he speaks about the works of the law. It's the same word. But Paul has a qualifying phrase. He says, works of the law. James is not talking about works of the law. Works of the law relates to Judaism. As a principle or a a, a, a form of religion that is overlaid over whom? Gentiles. The requirement for uh, becoming Christian is by means of the works of the law. Some Jews believe that that is how you get saved. That is not what James is dealing with at all. So there is no problem here. James is dealing with practical aspects of living. Doing things. Actions. Deeds. So there is no real conflict. When Paul speaks about works in chapter 2, verse 10 of Ephesians, he says, um, uh, God prepared good works beforehand for us to walk in. In chapter 2 of Titus, and I believe it's either verse 14, I think it's verse 14, where he says that um, he has called for himself a people who are zealous for what? Good works. That two phrases are exactly the same in meaning and sense that James has here. Doing things turn over to chapter 3, verse 13. Notice what James says, who is wise and understanding among you by his good conduct, let him show his what works, same word, same idea in the meekness of wisdom. And that's a different discussion here because wisdom is actually the main idea. But the point is that if you have wisdom. You know God, which means it will be demonstrated in how you conduct yourself. Live. That is the works that James is after. It's the same idea, just a a chapter later. So in 2.14, when he says works, what he has in mind is what you do after you have met with God's people. How you live in relation to God's people. This is in contradistinction to inactivity cold and callous religiosity, mental ascent to knowing God. You just have some basic beliefs or maybe even deep theological understanding of who God is, but it never filters down to your hands and feet. That is cold, callous religiosity that James says you actually don't know God. So first of all, it's a penetrating question. What good is it, my brothers? When you claim to have faith, but you never ever show that faith by what you do. That faith does not save. Secondly, there's a sobering illustration. Sobering illustration. How does this faith look in reality? What should be the accompanying works look like that James has in mind? Normally, at this stage, I would insert an illustration to make the point For the author, James helps with that. In fact, he's done the work for me. Verse 15 and 16 is the illustration. Now take note, it is an illustration. This is not the sum total of the point. So people have gone gung-ho on this illustration and said, Well, this is what we need to do in society. It's a call for social justice. Not at all. Not even in the least. That's not what he's talking about. In fact... What James is saying by means of this illustration is look at what you are actually demonstrating. Look at the quality of your faith and not so much at the works. So let's give attention to this illustration. James shows in verse 15 and 16 the utter ridiculousness of workless faith. He shows the absurdity of the profession to faith that does not eventually results in work. So, point of the illustration is to elucidate the point, to give clarity to his main point. The claim to faith must result in works. That's your main point. So, let's look at this illustration. If a brother or sister... Stop there. If a brother or sister... That's a strategic choice of words. I believe in verbal plenary inspiration. Every word is inspired by the Lord. In many other cases in this book, James says, Brothers, my brothers... My beloved brothers. And that is generally understood to incorporate all God's people. Even in in Paul. Pauline epistles. Even in Petrine epistles. Or Johannine epistles. All of them, when they use brothers, it's a general address to God's people. James breaks from the norm and he says, if a brother or sister, why does he do that? To call them in to a family relationship. In fact, if you look down at verse 16, he says, and one of you says to them, one of your own says to a brother or a sister. What has he just done? He's drawn them in, in an emotional, familial relationship to the person that he's going to describe. It's your brother or your sister. So be aware of who they are. So this strategic, intentional choice of words is used by James to evoke an emotional attachment to this person. I could probably use this as an illustration. When, um, when you watch sports, for instance, and, um, and a colored boy key is running in the Olympics... All the coloreds in the Western Cape are going to be watching the tally that day. Why? Because there's a familial relationship there. He's like me. If there is a white person playing basketball, now I know none of you love basketball because we're South African, right? Generally, a white person would want to go see how good that white player is. Why? Because there's a relationship there. He's like me. If a black person becomes the best surfer in South Africa, I can tell you that most black people will know about that. I don't know if there is. I'm using illustrations. Why? Because there's, there's a relationship there, and, and you want to know more about that person. In a Jewish context... When brother or sister is used, it is of your own kin. It's people of your own kind. There's an immediate attachment to them, and you have an immediate responsibility to them. That's what James is doing here. They are family. They belong to you. The tone of this illustration is set by those two words, brothers and sisters. Then he follows it up by... Describing who they are, read on if a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, I looked up this word uh, pure, uh, poorly clothed and it literally means naked now naked in a Jewish and a Greek mindset has a variety of different meanings it could be. Uh, like your child, when he's taking a bath, he runs through the house, stock naked. That that could be the idea. Absolutely no clothes. It could also mean that you have um, uh, very little clothes on. For instance, Peter, when he got out of the boat after the resurrection, he took off his outer garment. The word there is naked. He's exposed. And So it can be used of having little clothes or not necessarily being stock naked. But it can also be used of those who are inappropriately dressed for for societal uh, view. You understand what I mean, right? It's not sufficient to cover the bare basics of your body. That is the sense here. One translation says, clothed in rags, and it captures the idea of the illustration. They are so poor that they only have the bare basics to cover minimal aspects of their skin. They are inadequately dressed for public viewing. So it doesn't mean that they are necessarily absolutely naked. It's just that they are wearing rags. So they are poor and metaphorically being poorly clothed can mean being exposed. So they are poor and Exposed. Then he says, they are in daily need of food, lacking in daily food. The illustration is further intensified when James says that the state of the brother or sister is juxtaposed by lacking food. Not only are they uh, unable to clothe themselves, they are really skinny. They don't even have enough to eat for that day. You can get the visual image in your mind, somebody who is, what we would say, skin and bones, right? It is literally just skin and bones, as some of our young men may look like, but they are not necessarily poor. But in this case, they don't even have enough clothes to cover the skin and bones. So when it's cold, what happens to them? They are exposed, And they probably will be the first to die. James uses this. Not only to point out the inadequacy of their situation. But he uses it as a visual and a mental assault on the mind of the readers. For the Roman mind, they would snub at this. For the Jewish mind, it's uncomfortable. That's the point. Look. At your brother and your sister. They have now walked into this church. But look at them. You can visually see that they are in in desperate need. They don't have to speak to you. You can know by just the sight of them that there is a need. So that's the force of verse 15. So James shows these Words to mentally disturb his ears. It's a horrendous picture. It's an image, a visual image that you cannot unsee. I remember it was in uh, uh, 2000. I bought a Time magazine, and they had on the cover. I think it was uh, 2000. They had on the cover a uh, Ethiopian child, black child, with crumbs on his lips, but uh, with with flies all over his face. It's it's an image that you cannot unsee. That is what James has done. He's given, there's no pictures. He's not drawing it, but he's drawing it in their minds. Look at the state of this person. You get that, right? It would be the same as taking a really poor Ethiopian child and putting them in our midst. It's uncomfortable to look at. All you want to do is embrace them and take them out of that situation. You want by nature as a human being to help them nature but James intensifies it and says that's your brother that's your sister but take note in verse 16 how it gets even worse he says and one of you says to them this is your family and one of you who claim that they are family says to them go in peace be warmed and filled go in peace be warmed And Phil, pause there. Wow. That is callous and cold. But it is also, I'm going to put super in inverted commas, it is a super spiritual response. Let me explain. Take note of the language. Go in peace. That is a blessing in a Jewish culture. May God be with you. Um. I hope you have a good day and may the Lord accompany you is the sense. Go in peace. Be warm and filled is even worse than that. There's two ways that it can be translated. In the middle form, it could be you go and warm yourselves now and go and be filled by yourselves now. In the passive, it may mean may someone take care of you and warm you and fill you or theologically, may God warm you and fill you. Both are absolutely insane. James is saying, you see the need. This is your brother. You can visually see that they are in absolute desperate need of a piece of bread. What do you say? Oh, my brother, I know how difficult your life is. I've been praying for you. Super spiritual response. And I hope that things go your way. And that somebody actually meets your need. James says, do you see the ridiculousness of your claim? Take note of the last part of verse 16. Without giving them the things needed for the body. What good is that? The callous and cold response is uh, indicative of a greater and grander problem. It is not the fact that they haven 't seen the need. It is not the fa- it 's not the fact that they haven 't responded to the need. The fact is that they cannot respond to the need and that is what James is pointing to like I said to you it 's not so much the works but the quality of the faith that is in view here the, These two super spiritual responses tells you exactly. What these people think, oh, I'm going to be viewed as such a a holy person, as such a righteous person, when I I bestow a blessing on this person. How can that kind of faith honor God? James indicates that faith that is unmoved when they see this kind of reality unfolding is not only cold and unresponsive, but it is inconsistent with Christian faith. Why? Because it's obvious. If you take a person that is in absolute need and it's your brother or your sister, what are you going to do? You're going to take your jacket off because they are inappropriately dressed for public viewing. You're going to clothe them. Sounds familiar, right? Jesus says, you've got two coats, what do you do? You give one to the brother you need. But they can't see it. They can't respond. Their words sound so good. The indictment here is that all you have to offer is good spiritual words, but no good works. You cannot and will not give them the things that is needed for the body. This is equal to saying, when you see your brother beaten, think of the good Samaritan laying down and bleeding and you say, brother, I see that you are bleeding, but just don't bleed all over my car. Or, or please don't bleed all over me. I, I know you are in pain, but I just don't want to touch you. Real faith care about real people problems. Let me say that again. Real faith is invested in people. James says you see that that person has a need and you walk away. In fact, you say to them, you go and be warmed. You go and be filled. You actually send them away without doing something. That means that there is nothing inside of you that attaches to that person. That is dead and cold, unresponsive faith. But... What James is illustrating is that this person is actually making a beautiful, spiritual, super spiritual comment. May the Lord be with you. Go in peace. May you be warmed and filled. But there's no sincerity behind it. What benefit is that? Dr. Moo makes a good point when he says, quote, failure to provide for an obvious need not only harms those who are in need, but also raises question about the spiritual state of the one who fails to act to relieve the need, end quote. That is true. The sad thing is that many people have taken what James uses in this illustration social justice and that is not the point he's not even talking about meeting the need he's talking about the quality of the faith because he's going to make that point that the summary is in verse 17 the illustration is merely there to say look at how ridiculous your claim is you say that you know God but you cannot respond to an obvious need in your presence This kind of faith is of no value. It is worthless. Number three. A deadly conclusion. Verse 17. So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. I looked up that word, dead. You know what it means? Dead. (laughs) Loss of life. A corpse. Lifeless. No longer living. I think it's pretty clear. It's dead. Unresponsive. That's the whole point. Claim to believe in Jesus Christ with no resulting faith, uh, so it works, is no different to a dead corpse lying on the ground. In other words, your claim to faith actually means that you're spiritually dead. The illustration is not the main point. The quality of your faith is. Why could they not respond to the need? Why could they not see the need for what it is and say, I love this sister. I love this brother. I cannot bear to see them in this state. Why can't they? Because a corpse cannot respond to life. Ever buried an animal, an animal? We buried a hamster underneath our peach tree. Poor little thing. I killed it accidentally. We won't tell you how I killed it accidentally. That poor little thing never speaks to me. That poor little thing never does anything for us. There's not even a plant growing where he's dead. He's just dead. He's unresponsive. Notice what James says in verse 17. So also, faith by itself. Unaccompanied faith. If all you're doing is saying, no, I believe in Jesus. I believe that he is my Lord and Savior. I believe that God is holy and righteous. And I believe those things. But it's always just by itself. You've never demonstrated it. And James says, you know who you really are? you are that dead person lying in the ground unresponsive to what you're seeing around you. You cannot help your brother. You cannot love your sister. You cannot meet the need. Why? Because that faith is a dead faith. That's why they cannot respond. The profession of faith without deads are useless as a corpse in the ground. That's the point that James is making here. That does not mean that we do not care about those who are suffering in our church. In fact, it means that when we see as God's people that there are those who are brothers and sisters of us, we are immediately moved by compassion to meet their need. But if all you're doing is saying, brother, I'm praying for you, brother, I've remembered you in my prayers, what good is that? If all you have is sound, loving words, never accompanied by good, sound works, then I am seriously concerned about the quality of your faith. I said in the beginning, if you're feeling uncomfortable, well then good. James is speaking about obedient faith that honors God by good works. You may be one of these people who are not invested in church life. Who've never actually raised their finger to care for God's people. There's just no love for them. James tells us in chapter 1, verse 18, that God brings us forth, and the immediate result is that there is a changed life. If you've not been changed, and I appeal to you that you call upon the name of the Lord and be saved. If you are not changed by God, if you are unresponsive to the dynamic of church life, if you never want to commit to God's people, I am seriously concerned about you. And I appeal to you to call upon the Savior. For salvation, we are saved by grace through faith. And if this passage speaks about you, call upon Him to be saved. But if you are a believer and you have been disobedient all your life in not living the way that God has called you to live, and I, I honestly ask that God would awaken your soul to the reality of the state that you're in. Because if you do not listen, He disciplines those whom He loves. J.C. Ryle says, we must be holy because this is the only sound evidence that we have a saving faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. The twelfth article of our church truly says that although good works cannot put away our sins and endure the severity of God's judgment, yet they are pleasing and acceptable to God in Christ and do spring out out necessarily of a true and lively faith. In so much that by them, a lively faith may be as evidently known as a tree that is discerned by its fruits. End quote. I pray that that would be you. That your faith would be seen in how you live. Father, I pray that you would penetrate our hearts this morning. That there would be a response to you. Grip us. Pursue us to repentance. Save, O oh God, save. And discipline those who resist your grace. Father, sanctify us for your glory. That we may be a church that puts on display the saving work of Christ. That we would be unlike the people described here in this passage. But that our faith would be demonstrated in works. For your glory, Lord, we pray that you would change us, whether by saving or sanctification, work for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.